Rob Isbitz, welcome back to Investing Experts. It's great to have you back on the show. Thank you, Rena. Great to be here. And uh, boy, there's plenty going on and plenty to talk about. So uh, ready to get right into it. It seems the world is never short of giving us things to talk about. Likewise, the markets, I would say. Uh, so we've been talking on this podcast this week a, a lot about economic data and, and what the macro picture looks like. Pretty much smack dab in the middle of November. How are you thinking and looking about the markets? Sure. So my go-to uh, is this uh, piece of proprietary uh, intellectual property I created called the Roar Score, Reward, Opportunity, and Risk. And it really is just as simple as how much offense and how much defense do you want to play? Or you know, take proverbial $100, how much of that $100 would be playing offense, which is typically equities, and how much would be playing defense? And defense uh, uh, for a long time was uh, inverse ETFs, because of course I'm an ETF geek. Uh, but with the rise in T-bill rates after 11 Fed rate hikes, uh, you know, those have become very viable and, and even some of the medium to long-term bonds as well for defense. The Roar score, uh, so 100 is absolutely the most, you know, bullish, low risk, and zero would be uh, like maximum uh, risk of major loss. Uh, so it's like a floating allocation. Uh, it's been below 50 since August 10th of 22. It uh, ha was sitting at 10 for almost a record eight or nine weeks in a row. And it now sits at 25. So I think that some of the pressure is off. And I'll talk about this in a few minutes uh, regarding how you can look at the fact that a lot of stocks have not participated, not just in the very recent rally of the last week or so, but over the last uh, few years. But I think it's uh, interesting if you want to kind of sum up where the stock market is, look at where it's been. The S&P since August 10th of 22, when that Roar score of mine went below 50, signaling sort of tilting toward defense. Okay, I don't use terms like bull and bear market, but the uh, the S&P was at 4,200 back then. It fell to 3,600. It went to 45 and change. It dropped to 4,100, and now it's at 4,500. So it's been in a trading range for quite some time. And that's just the S&P, which really has not told the story of the broader market. Uh, stocks have been trading in a range or persistent lower lows. Uh, the technician in me sees this sort of gradually stepping down. The highs are lower than the previous high. The low is lower than the previous low. It looks like you're walking downstairs. And that has been the story for so many stocks, not since just 2022, but since 21 or even 2020 in some cases. Uh, so that's equities. And for bonds, the case, I think, is uh, a matter of, hey, not so fast. Um, you know, T-bills uh, below, uh, really one year and below, are still well into the 5% range. Uh, and there's a lot of great implications for building portfolios with, with, with that as a base. Um, and that is where most of my personal assets are, frankly. Uh, but uh, as the year has gone on, 
the higher yields have kind of uh, bled out into two, three, four, maybe even five year treasuries where you can still get close to 5%. Um, the biggest issue right now, and I've written about this and lots of people have, but uh, this obsession with uh, an ETF whose symbol is TLT, which covers the 20 to 30 year treasury, which is not really a logical investment for most people, but it has become an obsession with people trying to pick the bottom because TLT, long-term treasuries, remember these are bonds, these are treasury bonds we're talking about, uh, down at one point a few weeks ago, 46% from its high. Uh, so I think there's, we, this tells me that, uh, there's a lot of trading ranges out there. Um, I would say people should enjoy, uh, the end of the year festivities, uh, however they celebrate, uh, but don't you dare take your eye off the prize when it comes to markets and portfolio, because, you know, even a continuation of this recent stock market rally and plunge in long-term yields. Um, now, I could see the possibility that that can happen for a little while, uh, but the dangers uh, that existed a few uh, months ago uh, are still very much on the table. How would you advise investors to look at it? How do you think they should be allocating their, their funds? Well, that's a really good question because I just wrote an article for Seeking Alpha back on October 27th. And I did think the headline talked about my options portfolio, but I basically said, here, here is exactly how I'm invested strategically uh, across all the different types of accounts. And I think there's two things that that I can say, okay? I'm going to explain a bit of my process. And, and as I say, don't just say it, show it. I have different buckets of assets, which I describe, you know, fairly clearly in that October 27th uh, uh, piece for Seeking Alpha. And it goes something like this. When you can lock in a return uh, out a year, almost two years of close to 5% or more, that unless you're a very aggressive investor, and I'm not uh, kind of in semi-retirement mode, I want that to be the anchor of my portfolio as long as those rates stay up. And I'll extend the maturities out just long enough to when I think that the equity market, the long-term growth engine and the dividend producer uh, for investors, uh, when that is at a point of greater clarity, when my ROAR score is above 50, not straddling between 10 and 25. Uh, so specifically, the staples of my portfolio, really, I mean, since probably this time last year, maybe sooner, uh, are ETFs. Uh, I, I mean, I own T-bills directly also, but uh, ETFs uh, uh, like uh, symbol SHV or BIL, which cover different parts of the treasury curve. Uh, I own a decent position uh, in two-year treasuries directly, but I also own U2, U-T-W-O, uh, no relation to the classic rock band. Uh, but I would say, haha, I will follow that one as long as that one 
continues to be, uh, you know, as long as the yields are are reasonable. And the other thing is you can go out just a few years in treasuries. Uh, and if rates plunge, as people are starting to say, okay, well, eventually the Fed's going to have to lower rates. Well, maybe they will, maybe they won't. And bonds are not bonds, okay? There's different parts to it. Uh, I would say there's the short-term part of the curve. There's the very long-term part of the curve, which you might as well be investing in equities for the volatility we've seen in in TLT, et cetera. Um, And then, you know, there's the middle part, uh, which hasn't really developed a uh, a modern market's personality yet because the yields were suppressed for so long. So uh, you know, the ETFs I mentioned kind of give me that that ballast at the uh, you know at the the base of the portfolio. Because uh, think about it this way: if you have seventy percent, sixty, eighty percent, somewhere in there, in something where you pretty much know lock, stock, and barrel, as long as the government can still pay you, and if they can't, then we all have bigger problems. Uh, then uh, you know you've locked in a minimum return. I mean, you know, right? If we just do the math, if sixty percent of your money is earning five percent for the next two years, that's a three percent return. The other forty percent could lose seven and a half percent, and you've broken even in a down market. So to me, that combination of take the free gift, so to speak, then try to try to use the other part of the portfolio. And unfortunately, I just don't see a lot of buy and holds out there. Um, I see a lot of tactical moves. Uh, and again, mostly the prism for me is ETFs. Um, so you know, I have owned things uh, uh, recently. Um, such as uh, the blockchain ETF, BLOK. But here's a perfect example, okay? I own it. It's up 5%. I've owned it for two weeks, okay? I'm not cherry picking here. I'm giving it as an example. Well, if it turns out like a lot of tactical moves, it might not go up much more. And at some point, I'll have to say, okay, I wish I could have owned this for a year longer. And I can't. I I have to drop it because you know it goes up seven eight percent and then drops 20. this is that lower lows and lower highs so i think investors understanding that we are in a macro market environment where the risk to the downside is still so high again we'll score at 25 not at 50 or 60 or 70. there is risk of major loss with that said there are things starting to set up that i'm at least I don't want to use hopeful uh, because hope is not a strategy, but I would say uh, you know, I have I have optimism that we may finally see some things that have legs where you can be more than a uh, uh, an equity investor that holds for weeks uh, uh, or even days that you can hold for years. Um, and I can talk about you know where where some of those would be. Yeah, for sure. I, I, what what are those points of optimism that you're looking at that you hope set up? The the simple way to go about it, uh, but I think it's oversimplified. And I see uh, retail investors especially do this all the time. And, and time will tell whether they're doing it with TLT. The basic investment lesson that I want to get across to, to folks is that just because something is way down in price, it doesn't mean it's investment cheap. 
If that were the case, then you could have bought TLT when it was 10%, 20% down, because that doesn't happen very often. And then you just keep going. And of course, I think we both know the math, right? You know, how many times can you lose 40% on an investment? Some people would say, well, you lose 40 and then you lose 40. And then after that, there's only 20 left. No, no, no. The way the math works, you could lose 40% of whatever is left every time. And this is why I suggest that all investors, all serious investors, go back and study up a little bit on the dot-com bubble era. Because my one of my most bullish cases for the broad equity market, okay, technology probably looks as strong as anything right now. I mean, duh, it's pretty easy to see that. But uh, you know, my charting work, and you know, I'm a technician for 43 years. Uh, so uh, my chart work says, you know, this this has at least the potential for temporary liftoff. Uh, I, so you could see the QQQ, okay? I played in more sheepish ways. I own XLG, which is the top 50 stocks in the S&P 500. So it's more tech exposure than SPY, or IVV or VOO, the three big S&P 500 capitalization weighted ETFs. So I own XLG, it's the top 50, but it's heavy in technology compared to the S&P 500, but not nearly as much as the NASDAQ. So I can see at least, because again, all we're doing here, investing is not about right or wrong. It's not about you know, it's going up and I'm 100% sure. That's why, again, I have the Ruhr score, okay? Uh, you know, 25 out of 100 kind of means that that the, the confidence level that equity moves are going to last is still quite low. But with that said, one scenario, and the reason I own XLG, um, you know, in decent size. I mean, it's it's the biggest equity position I have. Uh, I also own DIA, which is the Dow, because I look at the 30 Dow stocks, uh, not just technically, but looking at quant ratings on Seeking Alpha and and uh, and just you know knowing those 30 companies. Um, they look better than the market on average. So you put all this together and say, okay, maybe it's the beginning of a new bull market. Not so sure about that. What I think would be a more likely outcome if the market continues to go up is that it goes up like a rocket ship because you have all these professional money managers that have been caught off sides since the beginning of the year, have been underinvested in a year where the NASDAQ is up like 40%. And they, whether they want to chase it or not, they probably feel like they need to, or they're going to get fired in January or February if their clients even wait that long. This is an issue for advisors. This is an issue for hedge fund managers. Um, and frankly, it's an issue for investors because they shouldn't make everything a one-year contest, but that's another story for another day. So, uh, you know, that rocket ship, okay? I mean, I don't think it's out of the question that you could see the NASDAQ go significantly higher in the end of the year uh, and maybe even at the beginning of last year. Why? Because there is historical precedent in the dot-com bubble era. The strongest returns in upswings like that 
happen at the very end and then they crescendo and then they fall from earth. And you don't have to look back any further than a few weeks ago to see that all this money was flying into the TLT ETF. Uh, that ETF more than doubled its assets over the last three years. At the same time, it was being cut practically in half. If you do the math on that, think about how much money has been lost in TLT. If the assets have doubled at the time when the actual share price has been cut in half, okay, that's that's some historic math right there. Um, and toward the end of the TLT decline, it got sharper and sharper and sharper, like people were just throwing it out of their portfolios. Talking about TLT, and I'm talking about XLG, but these are, if you will, metaphors for the type of market that we are in where there's a wide range of things that can happen. And so I would rather pound into my portfolio a lot of things that I know what I'm going to get, at least for the next year, while so much of this turmoil plays out. I can always lighten it up later when the coast is a bit more clear. But picking bottoms in, in markets like this, with all the algorithmic traders swinging things around, I, yeah, I, good luck to anybody who can do it. That's not me. Last time you were on, we were talking about covered call ETFs, what you were calling option option infused ETFs. How does that come into play when you're talking about how you're how you're using these ETFs? So here's the thing with the covered call ETFs, okay? And again, just like when people say, "Oh, I, I you know, are bonds a good buy?" Well, I think T bills have been a great buy for a very long time now. Uh, but long-term bonds, long-term bonds have been absolutely a portfolio destroyer. And, you know, maybe now they're, they're a source of big returns. Okay. But there's the, when you say bonds, there's a lot of different things. I'm going to be doing a lot more writing. I think about, about bonds. Cause I, 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 I think that there's a, a gap broadly in investor understanding and it's understandable because it's been 15 years since anybody had to care about bonds because they weren't yielding anything. So, um, you know, when it comes to covered call ETFs, uh, I recently had a little bit of a journey with those. I mean, I've used them for a long time. I mean, I used to run those types of strategies within a mutual fund that I ran years ago. It was kind of a hedge mutual fund. Uh, so I've been a practitioner for a long time, and I saw all these other products come along, uh, you know, Jeppy being the one that uh, I referred to as uh, I don't I don't think it's a bad investment. I just think it's overrated because it I just don't think that it should have had 28, 29, 30 billion dollars or whatever it grew to over a few years. Um, it, you know, it's it's solid, but overrated. And I can say the same thing about a lot of ETFs that are very popular, not just uh, not picking on that one. Um, but here's here's what you know. You you invest in something, you dabble in it. I started to get a little bit more serious. I do uh, you know own several uh, covered call uh, ETFs. I don't own Jeppy. I own uh, XYLD, which uh, is the global X product that uh, covers uh, S and P uh, 500. I own QYLD, which covers the Nasdaq, and I own TLTW, uh, which uh, is that. TLT, but with covered call writing, you can imagine the income that comes in from that with all the volatility. But here's the issue with covered call 
writing ETFs. There are times where they are excellent investments, but through no fault or control of the investor, they can become dead money investments. And again, you know, if something has very, very, very low upside potential and massive downside potential, can we agree that that is something that you probably don't run after as an investor? Unless you're running a masochist fund. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So uh, so here's what happened recently, okay? I saw a, a buying opportunity in some of these. Okay, I'll use XYLD as an example because uh, it's, you know, it's the basic one, okay? It's the S&P 500. It's entirely covered by calls, okay? Now, Jeppy and some of the others, uh, I think they they have one advantage over some of these others in that they don't cover the whole portfolio, okay? Um, and there are many others. So when people say, oh, covered call ETF, don't overgeneralize and say they all work the same because they don't. So, but let's look for the ones where they say, okay, we buy the S&P 500 and we completely cover it with options. That basically means that every month you're going to get a income payment based on the volatility of the S&P 500. And I don't know, maybe that amounts to high single digits, low double digits. You might get a little bit of upside, but not much because the whole portfolio is basically capped at where those covered call options are struck. So here's what I saw recently in the covered call world. And it almost makes me think that they will ultimately be seen as better tactical vehicles than long-term vehicles. So here, here's what I saw. So the S&P falls just about 10%. Uh, I, I look up on the website for an S&P fully covered call ETF, and I say, look at that. Okay, I'm, I'm using my options experience. So, so the strike price of the options that are covering the whole portfolio is up at like, I don't know, let's pick a number, 4,500 when the S&P is at 4,100. So what does that mean? That means that you're still going to get that dividend every month, but you have upside because those calls don't stop your profits until S&P goes from 4,100 to 4,500. Well, that probably won't happen so quickly because, you know, uh, it, it could take a little while to get back to that. No, wham. In like, I don't know, it seemed like two days, maybe it was two weeks. The S&P goes from 4,100 to 4,500. So that was nice return for ETFs like XYLD and, and some like it. Uh, but now what? Now you're basically dead money at, uh, at 4,500 until the next month when they'll give you a little bit more income. So to sum this all up, you're getting income in these things little bits at a time once a month. Let's say you're getting, I don't know, three quarters of a percent, maybe 1% a month. But you can also, if the market goes down in weeks, not months, you can lose a year's worth of that income very quickly. In this case, it's snapped right back. Great. Just keep earning your income. Pretend the next, the last couple of months didn't even happen. 
But in a worsening market, if if this down ladder, lower lows, lower highs continues, then I think a lot of covered call ETFs uh, that are fully covered and less so, but still a case for the partially covered, they are vulnerable because you're you know, it's like you're bringing in money, even if you're bringing in one percent a month. If the market falls 10 or 20 percent in the next six months, you can't make up for that in income. And last I checked, losing money is worse than preserving capital. Could you synthesize? I, I appreciate that rundown. Can you synthesize? I, I feel like it would it would behoove investors listening to this. Why Jeppy was so popular and why you call it overrated? Yeah, I wrote about this a little bit. Okay, so the biggest reason that I had some concerns about Jeppy, and my concerns were so great that I actually called J.P. Morgan, who runs it, and and I asked some questions. Um, I I wasn't like uh, some private investigator, uh, but uh, you know I looked at the prospectus. I looked at the current holdings. I was able to figure out, okay, I see the stock portfolio. That's a great thing about ETFs. You can see the stock portfolio every day. You don't have to wait like, you know, every month or three months, like in mutual funds, you know what you own inside of there every day. But in the case of Jeppy, uh, the way they go about the covered call writing is through private investment vehicles. So if you go to the GlobalX website, you can see exactly what they own. It will say, we own this many contracts of um, SPX, you know, the option symbol, uh, uh, you know, this strike price, uh, this expiration date, and this is how many days we have till expiration. And then when they, one day before the end of it, they swap out that one and they go to the next month. And this is what they do. In the case of Jeppy, it's, I think, a little bit more like, hey, trust us, we know what we're doing. Now, maybe that's because the fund is big. And I think they're starting to, to release a little bit more information about it, you know, since I first sort of challenged it, uh, certainly not because I challenged it. But, you know, you look and it's like, okay, so I want to know, because remember that analysis I just did, you can't do that with Jeppy if they don't tell you where the options are struck, how far they go out, okay? And, um, you know, so you can't analyze it the way you would if you were doing it yourself. And to me, uh, one part about ETF investing is the convenience and the discipline uh, of having an index or an active manager do that for you. So that really had me miffed. I mean, I, I, I was like, Really, like you can't, and and maybe it's because the fund just got so big that they just they had to do it all private. Fine, but the fact is, you, me, investors in in any fund, if you don't know what you own, uh I say, hey, it's doing okay, but uh it's overrated to me because there's a transparency issue. Anybody with questions about. ETFs or portfolio construction, you keep your questions coming and we'll hit them up with these uh, conversations with Rob. So let us know what you think. Rob, appreciate you coming on. Look forward to the next time. Get your ETF questions in, everybody. 
Anything else you want to uh, leave listeners with before we go? All I would say, and I think I say it every time, but I'm going to say it especially uh, now, given the state of the world and everything, uh, I think uh, you're awesome and you're awesome at what you do. And so is Seeking Alpha. Uh, It's an incredible community. And uh, I would just love to continue to raise the bar within that community uh, as one of many people that have kind of, you know, been around the block in this industry. Yeah. Amen. I hope to raise the bar too on the, on the shoulders of giants. May we all continue to uh, raise the bar. Appreciate it, Rob. Great conversation. Thank you again. Thank you, Rena. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app. And we'll see you soon with a new episode.